Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is putting supply chains on autopilot with Ali Raza. Welcome, Ali. Hi, Joe. Thanks again for having us on your Logistics of Logistics podcast. Thank you so much for coming. This is going to be quite the education, guys. Ali has done something that really needed to be done a long time ago, but I don't think the data was available to do it. But before we get into any of that, Ali, please introduce yourself and your company. Thank you, Joe. And I would like to elaborate. It's it's a team effort that's uh, been done here at Throughput. So uh, just a bit of a background about myself. Uh, my name is Ali Raza. I am the founding CEO of Throughput. What we do at Throughput is improve material flow across industrial operations. We're based here in Palo Alto, California, but we work all over the world with industrial CEOs and companies that are looking to improve their throughput. Excellent. Excellent. So before we go any further, what is Throughput? Yeah, so Throughput is an AI company that helps customers tap into their existing data to improve not only the material flow and the free cash flow of the business, but also helps production, supply chains, logistics, retail operations work better together, right? If you think of the global economy, which is $90 trillion proposition, everyone is essentially making or moving stuff, right? To get them to work together, to get the customer more on-time and full deliveries, what they want is essentially the objective of any business. So that's who we help and who we are. Yep. So when I say what is throughput, you just describe what your company is. And I know I was just kind of fiddling around with it, but I looked online, it says throughput is the amount of product that a company can produce and deliver to a client within a specific time. And you know, another way, friend Steve always says, it's what you get out the door. So I think it's a challenge, throughput is a challenge that we have all faced forever. And uh, we'll get more into the problems with it. It seems simple enough, make stuff, ship stuff, right? But <laughs> anyone who's listening to this podcast, know it doesn't work that easily. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. And as, as you pointed out, for some people, throughput is a metric. And then for the people who come from the theory of constraints world, throughput is a mindset, right? Right. And that's where the difference is, uh, I think, also with throughput is what if you could build a company around just the idea of throughput, getting stuff out the door faster, whether you're in automotive, food and supply chains, uh, agriculture, wherever you do business today. So you're absolutely right. Throughput means a lot of things to different people. For the physicists, it's about speed. And for the gold rat enthusiasts and the theory of constraints enthusiasts, it's a lifestyle. Yep. So please elaborate a little bit on gold rat. Yeah, Ali Goldratt is best known for his book, The Goal. And he was one of the first guys who came along after Taichi ono, ono and Henry Ford to talk about how if you focused on the constraint of a system, you could actually improve the material flow, improve profitability, and ultimately lead to an ability to create and help your company create more market share, right? Now, this idea was pretty revolutionary in the 80s, and a lot of MRP, ERP systems, all sort of digital systems came to be that uh, promoted this. But he basically took us back to the fundamentals of fluid mechanics, right? Which is the logistics of how things move, right? And so he's created this entire world of theory of constraints. But uh, essentially, it's all tied to other movements that, as I mentioned, the lean guys uh, in Japan, before that, Henry Ford, and even before that, Woolard and Taylor came about with. So. Right. I think what was the genius of Golrat is, uh, was he wrote the book, The Goal, and he wrote it kind of almost like a story, like a fable. So when you're reading it, 
it, you know, if he wrote that book and had called it Theory of Constraints, I would have never read it. Well, actually, I had to read it. So I would, I would have read it, but many other wouldn't have read it. But I'll never forget the first time I was exposed to it. It was probably in the 90s. And I think the book was written in 84. Yep. It, sitting down was over at Chrysler and we some consultants came in and I was invited and I was happy to be invited. It was a, a group of executives and we watched the goal, some videos of it. And I remember there were some books there and I took one and took it home and I was like, he really makes a very complex problem. Simple. And it sounds as if you built throughput AI kind of as is almost an extension of his work. Yeah, absolutely. I was fortunate to come across this work. But before that, uh, I had uh, no background with theory of constraints or the goal, uh, primarily because uh, my background is I'm a chemical engineer who worked in the oil field. Before you get to that, so where'd you grow up and where'd you go to school? I think it's an interesting story. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is part of the Lehigh Valley, which is a huge logistics hub for uh, people who are out there today. I think we had something like 1% warehouse vacancy a couple of years back. So it's really boomed in the last few years over there. But I spent most of my childhood growing up in uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and then Pakistan before I ended up moving back to the U.S. for college. And how, then, did, how did you end up over there? Well, my dad was out there as a surgeon as part of the Gulf War efforts, and then he decided to be closer to my mother's family in Pakistan. So I basically uh, you know, traveled with the family, attended the American schools there, and then ultimately came back for college here in uh, Philadelphia. So how many languages can you speak? Proficiently, maybe four. Of the ones that I maybe understand, six or seven. Damn, I'm still working on English. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you came home for college. Where'd you go to school and what'd you study? Yeah, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I studied chemical biomolecular engineering. So uh, chemical engineers study the way things move, right? Everything down at the physical chemistry level to the big industrial level of how do you move, you know, steam through a power plant and so forth. And I also took engineering entrepreneurship there. So always had a, a vision of maybe starting a company in the industrial space and also took some classes in finance at Warden, which kind of became the foundations of my accounting and finance background. Your brain must be fascinating. You speak all those languages, but you also took some very technical stuff in school. Usually, if somebody's really good with languages, they lean towards that. You uh, lean towards the other side, which is technical. Smart man. So tell us a little about where'd you start your career and give us some career highlights before you started Throughput AI. Yeah, absolutely. So I've, I've always been in, I guess, p- people business, if you look at it, right? So I first started as a, a startup intern back in, say, 2009 in, in the Philadelphia ecosystem, right? So that's uh, around the time where I started to learn about tech startups, and that was essentially my first job. I did some work at GlaxoSmithKline, more on the sales and marketing side, and, and seeing how uh, a geo-market rollout of vaccines coincidentally works. And from there, I, after graduating from college, I had offers to work in multiple industries tied to chemicals, but I ended up working in oil field services at Slumberger, where I started as a operator. So typical fixing pumps, getting on the back of 18-wheelers, getting stuff to and from location, heavy industrial equipment, not only in uh, onshore settings, uh, places like Oklahoma and Texas and Arkansas, but also internationally. Right, I, I lived off the coast of Dubai on a ship for eleven months. Uh, so I've done. Oh, wow. and, oh yeah, interesting things that I got involved with. My last role was uh, running geomarket services for Pakistan and Yemen during the invasion of Yemen. Right, so learned 
how to run supply chains in unpredictable environment. You know, I get calls on Saturdays saying, Ali, they launched a rocket on the rig. And, you know, what do you do to that, right? Uh, so that's where I cut my teeth. But uh, really working from the operator level to the field supervisor level, and then ultimately becoming the guy who started running uh, geomarket services, right, for them. And ultimately, all that means is a, a fancy title of seeing everything, but ultimately being on site for the big jobs, right, and uh, leading the charge there. That's crazy. So managing supply chain and production is hard enough when you're not getting shot at. I can't imagine what that was like. So you saw you, you saw something that made you start throughput. What was it? Yeah, absolutely. So I had the privilege of being given the opportunity to run two countries at the time, right? This was back in uh, a while back. So it takes a little bit more appreciation of uh, how companies, especially Fortune 500s, run their global supply chains. When you move out of the field where you're assigned a task to do on a daily basis, right? Like, uh, you know, hook up to the wellhead or uh, make sure these 18 trucks are here with their radioactive densitometer certificates, right? When you go from the day-to-day of that to becoming sort of an administrative person, you start seeing how all of the functions start working together. So that's sourcing, procurement, logistics, engineering, legal, accounting. And once you have that access to that PNL sheet, you also start seeing some of the IT systems that are involved, right? Where how are things being ordered? How are we tracking sales? How are we tracking operations? What's going on with maintenance, right? And so one of the things that I realized when I moved up, say, in the world, right, was that when you look at operations today, there's a distinction that you make at the individual level. And it happens across many, many companies, right? which is that production doesn't seem logistics and supply chain as part of the same cloth, being cut from the same cloth, right? And ultimately, it's all about servicing the customer and getting things on time and full. So one of the biggest problems that I saw, and this is not just in one industry, this is across 13 to 14 industries, is how do you get the production and the factory and the manufacturing guys to start seeing that logistics and supply chain and production are all part of the same pipe, right? It's all part of the same material pipe. Right, right. It's interesting because we were talking about that today. I guess they meet on the dock. That's it. And, you know, there's always an effort. But when you answer to a different director, maybe a different company, the communication is tough. Yep, absolutely. So you saw this problem. And so you decided to start a company. When did you start Throughput? And give us some background on the early days. Yeah, the, the early days of throughput was uh, I came, so I left the company and I, I came back to Pennsylvania and started to think about, well, should I go back into entrepreneurship? Because that's essentially what I wanted to do after graduating from college. But I also didn't want to give up on my industrial background of, you know, being around 18 wheelers and fixing machines and all that, those sort of things. So I got back to Pennsylvania and I realized that there was this huge inventory problem globally, right? And it wasn't just oil and gas, which gets a uh, bad rep for being incredibly wasteful, but it's everything from automotive. Uh, if you, I mean, we calculated, we sat in the office in Palo Alto and calculated how much waste there was in the world, which is stuff not getting to people on time and in full. And we calculated, what, 10 to $25 trillion, right, of stuff that never makes it or it was overproduced, right? And that kind of became the light bulb. So I ended up moving down to Houston thinking oil and gas would be a good foundation to start learning what's going on with the chemical distributors and so forth. How Throughput came to be is we incorporated in late 2016, launched officially in 2017, uh, later in 2017, is uh, we were sponsored by a accelerator out of uh, Memphis that was backed by uh, FedEx and the family out there. And so that's how that was essentially my 
entry or throughput entry into the formal logistics world, right? And formal supply chain world. Because so at that time, been, they must have been hearing something good for the FedEx family folks to give you a check. Yeah, absolutely. That vehicle saw the potential. And again, it comes down to jargon, right? Uh, like you mentioned, throughput as a metric is something that supply chain people get, right? Container throughput is what the terminal guys are always talking about. I mean, automotive, it's all about manufacturing throughput, right? And so I think they got the metric, whereas in oil and gas, throughput has never been a true metric that I remember seeing across any of the sheets that I looked at, right? It was all on time in full, uh, service quality, these sort of things. So yeah, just moved to Memphis, started learning some of the business there from the guys on the railroad at FedEx, of course, out in Germantown, and we're incredibly appreciative of what they did for us. And then naturally, when you start building a tech company, people find out about you. And then out here in uh, California, we were sponsored by an accelerator, and that's how we ended up moving here. And since then, we've gone on to raise money from industrial executives who believe in the mission, and they've seen the problem firsthand as CEOs of major companies, right? So... So, you know, this is just, I'll just give the set this up a little with my own background. So I worked in this value stream mapping or lean or whatever you want to call it. We tried to use theory of constraints. We're using an automotive supply chain. So we would work with Chrysler supply chain. And I remember whether it was Yazaki or Magna or one of these large companies from the time they, and they, a lot of those companies have 300 suppliers to the product. And what I always kind of thought was crazy is how many people we would get in the room to figure out, like map out this whole process. And this was probably 15 years ago. We had data, but not data like we do today and not accessible data. And But we had all these kind of different inputs and we would put together, I would say, hundreds of years of experience to figure out how to get this material flow to be optimized. And that's too hard. You know, if you're in a production facility, you need to make decisions basically every day. And ideally, I mean, ideally, you don't need hundreds of years of experience to make those decisions. And I think what's crazy to me is now we have all these systems. We have WMS, we have TMS, we have the demand data. We have all this different data, but I don't know that we're that much further along right now. So what do you? What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is what I, and the throughput explains to the chief operating officers and the C-suites that we meet across the world, right? Which is okay. Um, in the last several decades, there's just been so much digitization go on, right? With the systems that you were talking about and now with the age of AI, as they say. But through all of that noise, I think one of the things people are asking again is, well, what was the original goal? What was the original problem that you were solving, right? With these digital systems? Was it efficiency or was it effectiveness, right? And are we still solving the ultimate problem that's been there since Henry Ford's days, right? Which is how do we get more stuff to our customer on time and full and get paid for it, right? Which is the throughput problem. And so what we realized was that what's happening, especially when we came out here in California, is there's a lot of AI startups that are essentially doing this, right? Where they're connecting all the different data together and building a super AI model and the AI is saying that optimize it this way, right? And the operation says, well, that's not feasibly uh, possible, right? And then Ultimately, we took a step back and said, well, ultimately, if you had to simplify every operation today, how could you do that, right? And it ultimately came down to making or moving stuff, right? Now, when you simplify the problem down to just making or moving stuff, 
that's easier to work with. And that also filters out a lot of the data that you don't need immediately to make an impact, right? You don't need 700 different variables. Like everything, we get stuff like, I don't know, speed to Young's modulus to you name the metric, right? And if you can focus on the global demand, right, which is what the C-suite cares about, the overall capacity, right, that you have as an industry, right, or as a company, and what your supplier lead times are, if you start at that sort of superficial level and do a quick and dirty with the existing data through the systems that we use, you can improve at least the product mix, uh, the on-time info, and at least prioritize around the bottlenecks and the constraints of the business, right, or the single constraint, as theory of constraints says. So let me give you, and we talked about this offline, so... Let's use this example, and you can tell me how to fix my world. So I am the general manager of a pie company. I answer to the owner, and he expects me every year to deliver him $10 million. And I do that by selling a million pies. So I get $10 margin per pie. So that's about 20,000 pies per week. And it works like a charm. I've got that factory optimized. I got my suppliers all aligned to production. And it's pretty steady state, the demand. So I'm selling two different kinds of pies. I sell them online, I sell them to stores. Life is good. I'm delivering my $10 million, I'm hitting my bonus. This is the perfect world that we don't live in. But this is the way it's working, right? And then last March, COVID hit, and my online orders just exploded. I had to sell a lot more pies. It looks like about, in the first few weeks, it looks like 20, 30% more volume. But it's just a week or two, and who knows? I don't know, maybe COVID will end in April. I I don't have a sense for it. And at the same time, my production guys are starting to get sick and they aren't coming in. So I have an absenteeism problem. And then I hear the same thing from my suppliers. And then my safety guy says, we have to do protocols. All of a sudden, I'm not feeling good about my production. And I got to deliver 20% more pies, maybe 30%. I don't even know. And the boss still wants his 10 million. I think he probably wants 12 million now. But I'm looking around at demand data one week. Doesn't tell me much. Oh, by the way, all the trucking companies, that's the capacity is screwed up there too because there's people who are sick and it doesn't seem as if we have enough. So I come to you and say, Ali, save me. <laughs> I want my bonus. What can you do? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. To build on that, right, and this is was completely serendipitous, right? Uh, we ran into the authors of the book, Throughput Economics, and now Ellie Schreckenheim is a great advisor to Throughput and Henry Camp. He specializes in this business. So if the listeners have some time, I would highly recommend picking up that book because it's built around scaling and turning around a bakery operation where they're selling, I believe, donuts. Oh, good. I'll put a link to that book in yep, the show notes. Absolutely. I think the first takeaway that you need to think about is your capacity, right? Whether, and this is what I explained to our customers, that whether it's December 31st or January 1st, right, your capacity doesn't change. Yes, the financials change because you might have closed the book for the fiscal year, but your capacity is what your capacity is. What you can do today is you're sitting on a ton of data, right? And COVID is often a one in a hundred year event, right? So we don't build businesses, most businesses are not built to fulfill an incredible demand spike for one year for COVID and then, you know, disappear, right? That's not how you build a sustainable business. So the best thing you can do is look at your existing data, right? You're sitting on mountains of demand data that can give you a quick understanding of, well, how out of the blue was the spike, right? And does it justify, is there a fundamental shift in or what people call the new normal, right? That we're just going to be pure e-commerce moving forward, right? So you have that data today to go through and benchmark against all the years before and say, okay, we expect that there's an X percent chance that this is going to continue for the next two to three years. So being more data-driven really helps. The second part is the capacity, right? It's all about 
selling products that make more margin, right? That's an ideal business to be in because if you're selling commodities, you got to sell more volume. But if you're selling something that makes good margin, you just have to figure out how to sell more of that to more customers, right? So putting the right products on the right ovens or whatever production lines, if you're a huge operation pushing out pies, right? It's important then naturally looking back at your suppliers to see who is more on time in full and will help with inventory turnover to lead to that incremental cash generation, right? That's what we talk about when we talk about putting supply chains on autopilot, which is if you can predict the demand and understand what the product mix needs to be and make a decision, an educated guess using the data that you have, and it's totally available, right, from your planning systems, tying it back to operations saying, okay, we know we can deliver to this capacity and look at the critically constrained resources, whether it's the machines, the people who are getting sick, right, how you can reorient them in terms of getting more output, which is what our system does, and tying it back to the lead times. Now you have a, a system that is a little bit more resilient, right? And that's how we help companies in food manufacturing and food and logistics redefine the problem, right? And really free up that excess capacity that they previously might have not seen, not at a global level, right? I mean, there's always the opportunity where you found a fantastic lean consultant who came in around the four walls and solved your problem or a fantastic theory of constraints consultant that did it for a three or four fact. But if you're a bigger company and you want to go more global and you're looking at things like, you know, the, the semiconductor shortage that the automotive industry is facing right now, we provide that AI tool to essentially take into consideration how all of those functions of that supply chain or value chain pipe work together. Yep. Well, I'll throw this out there. Again, I'm trying to run this factory and I've been doing a good job. I'm getting my bonus and I'm delivering that $10 million in margin. But um, maybe I've gotten a little weak in my day-to-day decision-making because it's easy, right? And now I hit this spike. I don't know what to do. I don't know whether, you know, I think maybe the online orders, some will continue, but I'm not sure. Can you give me something? I have to make decisions this week about production. Can you give me actionable data out of throughput AI that tells me what to do without me being a theory of constraint expert, without me being a lean expert? Absolutely. And that was sort of the fundamental shift when we started building out the software. It's like, where's the operations logic for all of these end-to-end systems for production and meeting demand, right? So what we realized is we need to make the inputs really simple, right? So if we have the capacity data, which is what you're outputting from your production lines and what and, and how, by how much and the quality, and we know what your demand data is. And if you could provide your financial data, which is, okay, what are you acquiring your raw materials at and what are you selling it for? We can reorganize it from a throughput accounting perspective, which is a little bit different from cost accounting because it focuses more on, you know, the, the sales minus the variable costs, which actually improves the margins, right? Um, we can do that within three days, right? We've done it as fast as 24 hours with major food tier one suppliers, right? To big, big companies in the food space, right? So so let me ask a question. So I have suppliers, I have, let's just say 30 suppliers that help me make my million pies a year. They might have problems delivering what they need to. And then I also have this trucking problem. I have, there's a capacity issue all of a sudden. So do I just discount that and say, I just all I do is adjust my capacity within my four walls and worry about that? How do you guys manage that? Yeah, I think that's been the challenge of COVID and other events like this, right? So um, if you think about it, just capacity is not only a factory for, you know, four walls problem, right? To be able to look systematically from a global perspective at your entire value chain and honestly ask yourself, what is the constraint, right? Is it on the supplier side? Is it on the logistics side? Is it on my manufacturing side? Or is it down at the distribution center to the retail side, right? That's the question you need the data to look at first and determine 
where you're going to get the most impact in terms of solving. So that's the approach we take, which is, okay, let's not just look at this as a manufacturing problem. What if it's a logistic problem? Why are we dismissing the fact that this could be a truck capacity fleet problem, right? And we've done this for several customers where they're now looking at uh, their truck fleets and saying, well, is there a way to reorganize and put the right parts in the right orders on the right trucks at the right time to essentially eliminate the need of two or three more trucks, right? Which is huge impacts. It's in the millions. So you would provide me that data? What the beauty is, is that you are already sitting on that data, right? And we just needed it as the inputs to the LE system that we built to give you the outputs that improve the free cash flow and the material flow. Wait, so you go back to, you mentioned a system, LE? Is that after Goldrat? Yeah. So, um, you know, when we first pitched it, it was primarily out of, we branded it as elimination intelligence, right? Because out here in Silicon Valley, it's a different world. It's more AI oriented, right? So Goldrat is what's been around since the 80s, right? It's just, especially my generation is really rediscovering this entire space of bottlenecks and theory of constraints and so forth. So the system. So what was Goldrat's first name? Eliel Goldrat. Yeah. But he went by, and so you named your system after him. Yeah, we were calling it up, Eli, when we marketed it as Elimination Intelligence, but it was really a tribute to Eli. And uh, luckily, we have Eli Schregenheim, who wrote Throughput Economics as one of our advisors, right? So it's really taking that work and standardizing it and making it more accessible to logistics operations, manufacturing leaders, right? Who may have read the goal sometime many years ago, but haven't figured out how to convince management to make the changes, right? Or haven't been put in the position of power to have that sort of influence where they can go and start making the changes on the production lines because they're just a junior engineer, right? Or an early operator. You know what this reminds me of? I, I was a draftsman early in my, my first start of my career. I was, I was a designer, automotive designer. And we would design parts and we would have to surface them. You had to surface parts even before there was computers. And it was like a dark art. And and some people could do it. I was trained to do it. I'm not so sure I ever did it that well. But you would have to create a surface. When I say a surface, it's like a curved surface. You have to give somebody that information for tooling. And the problem was, it just seemed like there was not enough people who could really be a good surface guy. And then when the CAD systems came around, it was like instant. It was so much easier. Yep. And it seems as if you're doing the same thing here. I don't need 30 years as a a TOC lean guy or Six Sigma guy, you're taking all of their collective wisdom, putting them in a system, and then you pull from all my systems, and then you apply this, guess, logic, and you provide me direction. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. And I think this was one of the foundations of, of building out throughput, right? What I realized when I figured out that there was a huge opportunity with bottlenecks and so forth in supply chains and industrial settings, what I realized was that you could be relevant you could do something on some corner of the world, right, where you were doing operations, but it may never be relevant because it's not in the limelight, right? And so the question became, well, how do I scale what I have achieved here with a couple of Excel sheets and algorithms and so forth at a level that anyone can pull off improvement in material flow and free cash flow with a standardized system, right? And how do we get this into the hands of industrial leaders who, who need it, right? Because ultimately, the trade-off is always the same, which is when we're not doing well, do we let the people go or do we let the inventory and the CapEx investments that we made in injection moldings and huge conveyor belts go? And it's never the latter, right? Because you're not going to rip out and sell 
a conveyor belt, then you wouldn't get that much for salvage value, right? So I saw that as the problem. It's like, how can we convince customers and industrial owners? And how can we build a system that could essentially deliver stuff five times faster than incumbents to say, hold on a sec. I know you're concerned about the P&O, what it'll look like at the end of the quarter. But there doesn't need to be too many drastic changes there on the worker side. There's enough you can do with material reoptimization and solving around the bottlenecks to ultimately get the impact that you want without touching your workforce. And so that really is what inspires people at throughput to work every day. Right? That's really the mission, which is how do we scale it up fast to get these systems into the hands of operations, right? Just like you talked about your computer-aided design systems was huge for engineering, right? How do we put this in ops management and C-suites to say, hey, you now have a tool to make the right decisions around working capital and balancing what you're spending your money on. So you see this as something in the C-suite, a, a tool for the chief executive officer and also the guy running the day-to-day operations? So just coming back to perspective, right? As I said, I was more on the geomarket services side, right? So if you look at that, that's essentially the equivalent of a chief executive officer, a COO of a geomarket, right? And the equivalent in smaller companies, essentially the COO or the CEO, right? It all comes down to visibility and the ability to make those decisions, right? So the tool, as I see it, is perfect for chief operating officers or people who were in my shoes or in the shoes that I was that are doing this now day to day, right? And so I really see this as a tool that the chief operating officer can quickly make the right changes from an output and material flow perspective and immediately go to a VP of finance or the CFO and say, hey, by the way, we made these changes. We invested this much in the software. This was the ROI. Our customers are happy. Our P&O and bottom line looks good. And our top line is growing because now we've cleaned out the gunk in the supply chain to actually sell more of what is actually selling. Coming back to your you know, pie example. Right. So today's topic again is putting supply chains on autopilot. So how do I do that? How, just use the pie example. Yep. So again, coming back to making and moving stuff, right? You're making pies and you're moving the pies to the end customer and you're bringing in the raw materials to make those pies, right? So if you look at how supply chains or that industrial operation can be automated. It's not about putting, you know, robots there. And, you know, I, I saw a video the other day where they're making, I think, 300 pizzas an hour. And there's like the, all these robotic arms making it happen, right? So that's not what we do, right? We basically say the following. You're sitting on all this existing data for 10, 20, 30, sometimes 100 years, believe it or not, right? Which is a reflection of how your operations are supposed to run at least 99% of the time, what your customer typically buys, and how your suppliers perform, right? If I have that data, I can look at what the demand trend is and predict what the demand trend is, right? It can be done to a certain... Can you use AI for that? Yes, absolutely. Machine learning, AI, uh, depending on what you're looking at, what sort of the data is, right? Even rules-based algorithms can do that from a more basic perspective, right? From statistical process control. Now, if you can predict that demand, right? You know what the product mix is going to be downstream. You're confident. Actually, you have more confidence than most of the market right? Because you're actually using data and your competitors might not be using data. If you can now tie it back to your production line, like making pies, you now know where that local demand is, what happens when there's a promotion item or COVID or whatever, and seasonality, cyclicality, because, you know, there's always more pies during Christmas. And you can actually tie that back to your production capabilities, right? Making pies and putting the right pies in the right ovens. And the last piece of that puzzle is, well, how do I fulfill those ovens from our suppliers so our customer never runs out of demand. And now you've 
pretty much created this amazing feedback loop, right? Where which is you predict the demand downstream, you figure out which pies need to be made and where it needs to be delivered and when to order from the supplier. And as you do it, as you go continue to do it, your AI gets smarter and smarter. And now you're essentially also eliminating the wasted dollars in the system, right? You're also fixing the working capital problem because you're not over-ordering and you're not over-producing and you're just doing it within certain bands. And that's what I mean about putting it on autopilot. Right. So I could also, if I said, hey, there's an, I've tightened this up, I've been using your system for a while, and I say, hey, there's a 99% chance I'm going to need four trucks next week. So I can go ahead and make the call and say, hey, I need pickups on Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because I already know. And that's based on a lot of history. And even if there was a spike, I kind of have that data too, because the AI can run scenarios, right? Absolutely. And I don't want to go into stock trading, considering what's going on right now, but this is a perfect tool for traders, right? I mean, if you can predict the demand downstream and you know which raw materials and supplies are going to be tied to that downstream demand, you know what to buy, right? Right. And you know what to negotiate. It's a wonderful tool. So enough of my theoretical pie company. Give us a real world example where somebody has had some uh, success with your system. Yeah, absolutely. So just to give you an idea of what's been hot during last year, right? So one of the industries that have really taken off with everyone staying at home have been packaging, right? Packaging, we package all our food and we get them delivered these days more than back in the day, right? Building materials have done well and food and distribution has been super hot. And of course, the logistics has changed. We are seeing less water bottles now being delivered to the office, whereas they're going more now direct to home, right? And uh, residential units. What we've been doing with customers is a variety of things, right? So in the agriculture side in Latin America, we've actually shown a customer how they can actually triple their inventory turns, primarily because it comes back to when do I order from the supplier, where do I make it on my which production lines and how do I tie it to the demand data that's been there for decades, right? Before you jump off that one, explain why inventory turns are good. <laughs> yeah, think of inventory turns as your cash and it's pretty much hot potato, right? We're coming back to uh, operations and the end-to-end supply chain, right? So the more inventory turns you have, the faster cash you collect and the, best, the faster you build up cash reserves and, and so forth. So it's all about cash flow, right? So positive cash flow, you think of Amazon, they take money from you before they even ship anything, right? That's phenomenal business. Anyone who gets into any sort of that business is Perfect business model, right? If you're sitting on too long for on inventory, especially chemicals inventory that goes bad, you're basically losing money. Right. No, I should say absolutely right. Yeah, that's why it's so important for the inventory turns, right? And the beauty of inventory turns is if you can have stuff move through the pipe faster, you're not going to have as much accumulation, right? So you're not going to need external warehouses. You, you're not going to need to call 3PL companies and say, hey, we need more shelf space. We need more shelf space because we're concerned that uh, you know our customers won't pick up or we won't have stuff ready. This comes back to the whole make-to-order versus make-to-stock you know, trade-off. But keeping it simple, right? If you're able to take something and sell it very quickly and make cash, that's the power of inventory turns, right? Versus, okay, I'm going to buy this and I'm going to sell this in three years and hopefully I make some money on it. That's why the jewelry business is very difficult because you're sitting on something that's very expensive for a year before you sell it. Yeah, and that's what I was just thinking of, Joe. I was thinking of the silver market these days and the gold market these days. So, You know, one other example, I'll just share this. I, I was always amazed by this. Back in, I don't know, probably the 90s, there was this boom in Dell Computer. And I remember reading about Dell Computer and I thought, this is brilliant, in that when I buy a laptop, and I did buy some Dell laptops, they would charge my credit card or my debit card right then and they would start to build it and with the uh, their suppliers providing that 
the parts they needed and they paid their suppliers in 30 days. So it was like they could grow on sales. They could bootstrap their way along for a long time. Absolutely, Joe. And, and I think it just comes back to every company that you can think of recently that's been successful in the industrial world has done something where they've transformed logistics, right? Whether it's the logistics of cloud, like, you know, Tesla with their over-the-air updates, right? Or whether it's Amazon where their e-commerce site, essentially where you can buy before they even have stuff, right? And oftentimes they already have safety stock. Or Apple that figured out the whole global supply chain, right? Or even the oil and gas companies who were the first global supply chain operations, I like to put it, uh, or if you can push it back to shipping, you can make a case there, right? So it all comes back to moving stuff from A to B or transforming stuff from A to B, right? That's how chemical engineers think. And for anyone in this space who's never thought of how chemical engineering can be applied outside of the lab setting or so forth, this is a perfect career, I believe, uh, for those who want to really solve big, very scalable fluid mechanics problems, right? You're talking about solving a very expensive problem. So I'm sure there's a lot of finance guys who want to hear this too. <laughs> so this is a big topic. Please summarize this for us. Give us four or five bullet points on this bad boy. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we live in a demand-driven society, right? So most of the focus today is on point-based solutions, right? Which is how do we get logistics or how do we build that killer app that gets X to Y faster for that segment of the supply chain, right? But for people who've been in global supply chain management positions where they're calling for supplies from Houston and Dubai and hoping it shows up in Pakistan or, or Yemen, we see it from an end-to-end perspective. So big summary takeaway is how do we get everyone to start thinking of themselves as being as part of the same pipe, right? Which is uh, regardless of what you make, regardless of what you do, regardless of what your your salary is, you're all trying to fulfill the customer, whether it's logistics, operations, supply chain, retail, you're all part of the same company. You succeed when the entire company succeeds. So the biggest takeaway is, okay, we need to get people to start working together, even though they have different disciplines and responsibility. Secondly, We have to create the right metrics, right, to measure the performance, to incentivize the production guys, the logistics guys, and the retail guys to work well together, right? And I believe that comes down to reorienting the metrics around free cash flow and material flow, right? Because I think that's something all of us can agree upon, right? All of us are ultimately doing that at at the global scale perspective. Thirdly is you need to be able to build something that's scalable, right? It's just, you cannot, there's only a few companies that have ever pulled this off. Toyota is one of them where they have an incredible Kaizen culture, right? And that's primarily in Japan and everywhere else. They're trying to bring people up to speed even to this day, right? And there's a great book called The Machine That Changed the World by Jim Womack. Oh, I love that book. That talks about it, right? And uh, they just edited it more recently about some updates that they found. And so that's the big thing, right? And the beauty is that there are digital systems and existing inputs, which is data today, to make that happen, right? And to get the global supply chain to move or have more inventory turns and essentially create more value and, and wealth for global society, right? We have to have companies now leveraging the technology like AI and machine learning to make that happen, right? And that's pretty much the takeaway, right? And the trade-off is very simple. Either we can have a growth mindset where we are helping people realize that working together, even in tough environments, you can have great free cash flow and great margins is the way to go, right? Otherwise, and the way not to go is to look at the, you know, the, the labor line, which is often no more than 5 to 8% in these big industrial companies as the first to go, right? So everyone should be happy about this. The unions, C-suites, shareholders, right, of private companies and public companies. I truly believe this is the future, right, for not only uh, sustainable operations, but for people's livelihoods. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, Ali, so um, this is great stuff. And I think you're, what you're created is fantastic because, again, I think you would have to hire an army of TOC, Lean, Six Sigma, whatever, guys to come to your facility, multiple facilities to make this happen. And what you're doing is sucking in all the data that we have of all these dis- different systems and then saying, here you go. And that's, and that's what you mean by putting supply chains on autopilot. You're giving them, you're taking that, oh, I shouldn't say taking, you're giving them the information to make the decisions that, and you make it easy and fast. <laughs> Absolutely, Joe. And keep in mind, big companies, because they have so much going on, right? This is not their immediate responsibility. So it's always great to have change consultants, right, that do have TOC and lean backgrounds to help implement, right? One of the things that our system will show is like, you need to order more of this, you got to order less of that, right? You need to put these products on these machines. But ultimately, a change consultant can highly benefit from a tool like LA because they can take on more companies, more factories, right? Yeah, I'm introducing you to some buddies of mine who are, one of my friends keeps bugging me and saying, well, when are you talking to that guy? <laughs> so I got to call him after we're done. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Throughput AI. Who do you serve? And then how does people reach out and talk to you? Yeah, so uh, Thrupa.ai is, uh, again, based out of Silicon Valley. We're an AI company that helps companies go on autopilot, right? Industrial companies, primarily because that's where our background is. We have people who have uh, built and exited eight startups, six exits, right? People who come from databases, people from Tesla, BMW, Mitsubishi, you name it, right? People who have been involved in industrial companies and we're there to help. Uh, them understand how they can still be extremely successful, extremely profitable, even in bad economies by using the existing data, which is a reflection of their behavior to improve their operations and to improve the world around them, right? Because everyone wants less emissions and more sustainable operations and so forth. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you, it's funny. We talk about sustainability. We do waste so much stuff. I mean, if you look at any industrial organizations, always worried about cost. But as a result, we're worried about scrap. And in my pie company, we worry about food going bad and having to throw it out. The worst thing that can happen in this world is this waste that, you know, when we don't do our jobs right, or even when we're trying to do our jobs right, sometimes there's enormous waste and we need to get that out of the system. Yeah, absolutely. And that's pretty much my day to day, right? So I spend most of my time with VP of operations, chief operating officers, because that's where I'm comfortable, Joe, right? Like I said, I'm used to being in the back of an 18 wheeler at 3am in the morning, right? Or uh, being on a ship and you know I've been there seasick in 40 knot weather and so forth, right? So those are the guys that I tend to relate with more. Right. But luckily, being an engineer with a little uh, statistical process controls background, I understand how you can leverage that data to find the bottlenecks and drive the material flow. Right. So if you want to reach out to us, please visit throughput.ai. If you would like to reach out to me personally, I'm very active on LinkedIn or you can just email me on Ali at throughput.ai as well. Yeah, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and to your company. And Ali, I do really appreciate you taking the time. This is a very complex, very complex problem, but I think you guys have got have found a way to simplify it. And again, I think there's a million problems like that that we don't have to solve anymore. You know, you used to have, if somebody at 30 years ago said, hey, I, you know, do this math problem, you had to sit down and do it by hand. Well, we got really used to our calculators and no one's going back anytime soon. So I think you've done the same thing for supply chain optimization. Yeah, I think I lost my TI-89 calculator somewhere in Abu Dhabi, and uh, I, I, I still miss it, right? Because it, it was my go-to calculator since I was 16, right? So, but yeah, I mean, there are systems today that can help people think more globally and realize we're really all in it together. We're all in the business of logistics, right? 
whether yeah. you're trying to do the biomolecular optimization and you're trying to build mRNA vaccines, right? That's delivery. That's uh, drug delivery, right? Is, is a whole couple of semesters I spent when I was in college just studying that. And then there's the global supply chains, right? Which is how are we moving things from ports like cobalt and batteries and all that type of stuff, right? So that's my perspective of the world. And naturally, everything could be a throughput problem in the industrial world, but everyone has to work together to make it happen, right? Regardless of the economics of it. So. Yep. This is fantastic stuff. I do appreciate it. Again, I'll put a link to your company, a link to your LinkedIn profile, and any other links. I'll put a link to that book that you described too. And thank you so much, Ali. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Joe. And uh, thank you for having us on this podcast. Uh, we will be having another podcast soon. Ronald Manloon is a huge influencer in AI, is uh, putting on. And I'm going to have to switch my hat now and be a little bit more technical on that podcast. <laughs> right. I didn't want technical here. I need simple. I'm a simple man. If you send it to me, I'll put a link to that in this uh, show notes also. And thanks again, Ali. And thank everyone for listening to the podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 